Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I'm Will Davis, free of all the nasty pathogens that I was harbouring last time. And I'm Leah Richards, now carrying all of them. Yay! Yeah, that's the explanation for why I sound all um, gravelly. This time round is... Uh, I think it has a certain charm to it. The rhinovirus is in residence. Let's not dwell on what's making you feel bad. Let's open with something that might make you feel smart. Maybe. Probably not, actually. The multi-million dollar industry of brain games turns out to not be doing that much for anyone. Which is unfortunate, because I think a lot of people are really hoping these will change their lives. It can help keep certain patterns of behaviour open, but when it comes to making you actually smarter than the latest research from Florida State University in Frontiers and Aging Neuroscience says that there's very little evidence that these types of games can improve your life in a meaningful way. A lot of the claims revolve around the idea that practicing tasks like remembering strings of numbers will help improve your working memory, which will slow down, for example, age-related deterioration. But the FSU study focused on this claim and found it any improvements in working memory from that did not seem to transfer to other tasks. Yes, it turns out that memorising long strings of numbers will make you better at memorising long strings of numbers, but looking at what they call far transfer, taking that performance and working with other tasks, it's... Well, I think best summed up in a quote from Dr. Neil Charness, who says, The thing is that seniors in particular should be concerned about is, if I get very good at crossword puzzles, is it going to help me remember where my keys are? And the answer is probably no. Charness does note that other studies have found that aerobic exercise rather than mental exercise does make a difference to brain function, physical exercise actually causing beneficial structural changes in the brain, as well as, for example, helping improve the general blood flow. He even predicts exergaming, combining exercise and brain games, which I think is maybe a little like a soft launch with Pokemon Go, getting people up and out of their houses. Needs more puzzles. Yeah, maybe you have to do the maths to catch the thing. Professor Layton Go? You have to walk around town solving mysteries? I'm into it. Okay, podcast cancelled. We're going to be rich. <laughs> well, we should probably finish this episode first. Probably. Talking of getting up and moving about, turns out that's really important for songbirds trying to get it on. There is a video for this, if any of you listening to this want to see just how a bird moves in order to make other birds enticed into its loving embrace, then... I mean, warning, it does end with bird sex, but since bird sex is usually just sitting on top of each other for two minutes and then looking very embarrassed, it's not necessarily NSFW. Research from Hokkaido University is looking at not just the dancing, but also the order of the dancing and how it encourages mating in songbirds. Because songbirds obviously have their songs to rely on, but the dancing, the physical attraction, 
also seems to play an important part, if not an even earlier part than the song. They are particularly looking at Java sparrows in this study. And the assumption was in Java sparrows, as with many other songbirds, because songs play very important social roles with bonding with a mate you already have, with protecting your territory and your nest, that this would also be the case with mating, that the first point of contact would be the singing. Turns out, at least in Java sparrows, that's not necessarily the case. The researchers found that although both duet dancing and male singing are associated with a higher rate of mating success, which is to say bird babies, duet dancing played an essential role in mating. So, as you say, before the males even start to sing, maybe a few notes in, dancing is already forming that bond, that connection, which may result in the two minutes of flapping around on top of each other, even more importantly than the song. Associate Professor Masayo Soma notes that future studies will be looking into the duration and degree of coordination in duet dancing to better understand the role of dancing, how dance routines change among pairs over time, and whether birds who dance better together have more mating success. I like to imagine that there are birds out there, one busting some moves and the other birds watching just like, oh, oh, Greg, oh, oh, geez, no. Oh. Some, someone just go get under Greg so he stops. That's what all birds of paradise look like basically all the time. The males are cracking out their flashiest moves and the females are like, I guess. Yeah, birds of paradise are an example of exactly how bizarre sexual selection can get. The first bird of paradise was a very crow-like bird that landed on the island and was like, holy balls, you guys. There is nothing here to eat us. Let's get weird. Let's get weird. Whilst dancing might be the true language of love for Java sparrows, the most commonly spoken language in the world, if you had to guess, what do you think it was? Pretty sure a teacher told me once upon a time it was Spanish. Even more than Spanish, more than Mandarin, more than French, English, more than any other language in the world, a team of researchers led by the Netherlands Institute of Ecology have identified communication between different types of microorganisms. Terpene, bacteria and fungi using terpenes are able to communicate with each other. You know, I think it's possible... They're using spoken in a rather loose sense, because a terpene is a sort of smell molecule. Implication is that this sort of chemical communication will work across an even broader variety of organisms. That the terpenes act as pheromones, they are already in use by various plants and insects, and they really do, they really are used to communicate. In this case, group leader Paulina Garbiva explains that Ceratia, a soil bacterium, can smell the fragrant terpenes produced by Fusarium, a plant pathogenic fungus. It responds by becoming motile and producing a terpene of its own. Pathogenic soil fungi, such as Fusarium, have an effect above ground, making plants sick. So the fungus underneath the soil makes a smell. The bacteria around it respond to that smell. The plants above ground are infected by the fungus underneath, and all of that information can spread 
kind of like in Avatar, where you plug yourself into a tree and connect with the planet. All of this rounds up in the press release with a PhD student under Garbeva, Ruth Schmidt, posing that organisms are multilingual. Terpene is the one that's used most often. So maybe, without even realising it, are we native speakers too? There will be somewhere, probably more than one instance of videos of researchers getting people to run around and then sniff each other's sweaty shirts. Oh, that's a thing. Caveman dating. Although, important to note, if you've got a uterus, for the best genetic variation, do that while you're ovulating rather than when you're menstruating and not when you're on the pill or pregnant, because those all change how you perceive those smells. Smelly facts, coming to you from Eureka Nerd. We're going to come back to smells a little later on, but first of all, who are you? Who am I? Who are you? on Facebook. And is that the same you on Twitter, on Tumblr, LinkedIn, Instagram? It's entirely not. People who know me on LinkedIn know me from university. People who know me on Tumblr know too much. Well, in research, which I'm not sure surprises anyone who thinks about it too much, the way that you present yourself in different social media scenarios conforms to different social expectations of how those social networks are used. For example, Posting a colourful Starbucks drink may be popular on Instagram, but the same image on LinkedIn would be frowned upon. Obviously, the core purpose of all social networks is to network socially. The clue is there, but different sites have got different personalities. So you go to Instagram to look at stuff that's pretty. You go to LinkedIn to be professional. So, yeah, you wouldn't share the same things there at all. But Pennsylvania State's Dong Won Lee, Associate Professor of IST, and Nishanth Sastri, Senior Lecturer of King's College, compiled information from over 100,000 social media users utilizing about.me. It's kind of a yellow pages of the internet for social media prospects, so you can link all these different accounts together. And they found that, well, not only do people portray themselves in different lights on these different networks, but there are certain trends emerging, like uh, women who are less likely to wear corrective eyewear, like reading glasses in profile pictures. So the researchers came to the conclusion that about 60 to 80% of the time, given a profile description and photo, they could identify the platform it was created for, because these different social networks have such different personalities. The thing that really gets me about this story, though, is the concluding paragraph which begins, further research in this area could provide social media users ways to engineer the perfect social media profile. Perfect for what? Perfect for what? Like, LinkedIn, it has a purpose of, like, optimising your profile for the jobs you are hoping to get. Anything else, if you're not trying to sell something, you're just there to hang out. So perfect for what? I think that reflects that so many people use Facebook and Instagram as quasi-marketing of themselves, that people try to get their own brand identities going. And for some people, it's just about, oh, I want to make the most friends on Facebook. And there's ways of doing that. You can buy them. Yeah. So what's the point? I mean, when you've got people like... um, 
the influencers on Instagram who are making like real good money by just sort of being fashionable and beautiful, then it's maybe one thing if you're aspiring to a lifestyle of living entirely off like luxury fashion freebies. But if you're just, oh, I want to connect with my friends and peers and share things that interest me socially and be sociable, then it all starts to sound a bit Black Mirror, doesn't it? And that's supposed to be warnings of how badly this can go? But it all does get a little bit hollow. Yeah. I'm not ready for the cyberpunk dystopia. I don't know how to hack anything. I would value honest communication over an engineered perfection. And that thought, that aspect, seems to translate to, to community engagement encouraging the use of vaccines in children as well, according to the latest research from a community health cooperative led by Kaiser Permanente. The study is looking into a new approach for reducing vaccine hesitancy, which is um, parents being concerned about vaccine safety, delaying or skipping childhood vaccines. So after that now completely debunked study that linked the MMR vaccine to autism, there has been a significant rise in cases of measles, mumps and rubella in the populations where it landed hardest. And the reason we vaccinate for these things is they can be potentially deadly. If they're not deadly, they can lead to life-altering complications. I know I've read something about measles, which suggests even in the majority of children who survive measles itself, their chances of dying of other common childhood diseases are significantly increased because of the effect that measles has on the immune system. Measles, mumps and rubella are also implicated in being very dangerous for women who are currently pregnant and having implications for those pregnancies. The point of vaccinating your kids is not just to keep them safe, it's to keep everybody safe because there are always going to be people who really, really can't have the vaccines because their immune systems are already compromised or whatever. It's important to reassure people that it's a good idea. Because it is. And apparently the most effective way of that encouragement being dispersed is with other parents. People whose children have already been vaccinated. Parents whose children perhaps are at risk from this gap in herd immunity, like you highlighted. Parents who appreciate the value of their child's lives and of healthy children in their community. And that the uh, the immunity community, as they have turned it, which is delightful. Is a network of health partners across Washington State, including Group Health Foundation, within Reach, Seattle Children's Hospital, and Kaiser Permanente. And they found that having an open, honest dialogue about why other parents have chosen to vaccinate their children, that it saves lives, can increase parental concern about vaccination in their community and other children not being vaccinated from 81% to 89% concerned. Those who describe themselves as vaccine hesitant fall from 23 to 14% and that fewer parents think that children receive vaccines at too young an age and more parents become confident in vaccination as a good decision and familiar with vaccination rates at their children's childcare or school. And there is a quote here from principal investigator Clarissa Hsu who highlights that 
This project was designed to counterbalance the prevalent anti-vaccine messages that do not reflect the fact that most, at least four in five people, vaccinate their kids and are supportive of vaccines. And what they've described so far, this immunity community, reflects an attitude in science communication, which I think is essential, and one that has certainly been highlighted with a lot of the pressure coming out of the March for Science and its build-up over this weekend, that you can't just tell people that they are wrong, and that you are right, and that you have the answers, and that they should listen, because you're right, and you're in a position of power, so they should just be receptive of the wisdom that you have, referred to as the deficit model of science communication, which was how a lot of public engagement was done for a long time, of come and learn from us. But that having the context of other parents, people who have had their children vaccinated and have their own inputs onto why it is important for them as a family, for them as a community in the school, adding that grounding and then taking that on board and engaging in a dialogue to say, well, why wouldn't you want your kids vaccinated? You heard from this guy? Are you, are you sure about him? He seems pretty sketchy. He's had his medical license revoked and he's now set himself up on a ranch in Austin, Texas, like a weird cult leader. And also, why do you think the possibility of your kid being autistic is worse than the possibility of them being dead? That, I think that is a, a very important thing to mention when we're talking about the idea of vaccine hesitancy and the active anti-vax communities is that a lot of them are using this well it causes autism thing as um, a threat almost yeah a threat which um, given the vast numbers of autistic people I know who are happy and succeeding and just are generally good and valuable people to have in the world it's is rude and offensive so um don't don't be that guy now the one note that i would have against this study is that there was no control group and with no control group there's no saying that for example the improved attitudes towards vaccination weren't caused by local outbreaks of measles or changes in law at the time but the theory itself of open, honest engagement. The fact that it's known that information that we are given while we're comfortable as opposed to while we're feeling challenged is more likely to be internalised all adds up to the possibility that this is counting for something. We move on from that vaccine hesitancy to a test group who seem to have enthusiastically embraced pharmaceuticals. Inasmuch as... This group of neuroscientists at the University of Sussex have been looking at what psychedelic drugs do to brains. And what they've found is what they describe as the first evidence for a higher state of consciousness. And I mean, if you've ever spoken to anyone who was involved with like the 60s psychedelia thing, it was all very much about accessing higher states of consciousness. I know people who claim they see colours when they're high that they can't see when they're sober. Professor Anil Seth, co-director of the Sackler Centre for Consciousness Science at the University of Sussex, which sounds like a cool place to work, says, this finding shows that the brain on psychedelics behaves very different from normal. Yeah, I think, I think that's kind of the point. During the psychedelic state, 
he continues, the electrical activity of the brain is less predictable and less integrated than during normal conscious wakefulness, as measured by global signal diversity. It is noted that previous studies have tended to focus on lowered states of consciousness, such as sleep or anaesthesia, whereas this study, they're looking at data collected from healthy volunteers who had been given psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, ketamine or LSD. I'm surprised to hear that ketamine can induce a higher state of consciousness. I thought it usually just sort of made people go catatonic. Yeah, the only thing I've seen ketamine induced is a weekend spent face down in a sleeping bag. It doesn't look like a fun time. Why would, if someone hands you something and goes, this is a horse tranquilizer, why would you go, this sounds like fun? I don't get it. Maybe if you were to give it a go, you could reach this higher state of consciousness, which they do define as a specific mathematical measure. They've not transcended into a different plane of existence. They are just scoring differently on this global signal diversity score, which they use brain imaging technology like magnetic fields to detect. Essentially, the psychedelic brain state is a distinct pattern of activation from sleeping or normal waking brain states. And it is even noted by Dr. Mathukumaraswamy, who was involved in all three of the initial studies which this study was analysing the data from, that similar changes in signal diversity were found for all three drugs, despite their quite different pharmacology. And this is both very striking and also reassuring that the results are robust and repeatable. Having repeatable results is an important part of a scientific method, even if it does involve people discovering new colours that they can't repeat later. If you're taking the same thing under the same circumstances and in the same mental state, you should be able to find it again. That's what experimental replication should be. And we have commented recently on replication studies in cancer, discovering how much of the initial research that went into identifying anti-cancer pharmaceuticals is replicatable, non-replicatable, from studies that were powered to achieve different endpoints. Well, it turns out that when it comes to psychology, replication studies are really digging up some dirt. Or rather, that replication studies that might dig up some dirt aren't being encouraged as much as they should be. Imagine that. Researchers looking at the recommendations for publication in various psychology journals have found that only 3% specifically say they welcome replication studies. And that is 3% of 1,151 journals. Not a small number by far. It's suggested that part of this is publication bias, which is a source of some lack of confidence in science in general, that journals will tend to prioritise things that are more groundbreaking and original and more likely to be cited later on because the impact factor, basically the number of citations a publication receives, is often used as a yardstick for quality. So top-tier journals like Nature and Science have a whopping impact factor compared to the kind of journals which come with their own expectations of, say, less impartial peer review or less stringent standards in publication. And 
Maybe that is because there are lots of journals that will take any manuscript they send them, including some that will just take a manuscript that says, this is not a manuscript, do not publish this, and then print it. This ties into publications with higher impact factors being more desirable as a goal for publication, um, and essentially means that trying to do replication studies and provide more data showing something, show that it's definitely not a fluke, essentially make the science that we're doing more robust. There's not the incentive to do that, which when you're trying to do science as a practice, making observations, testing assumptions, it's unhelpful. And more than just lacking incentive, Professor Neil Martin describes that 33% of the journals out of this 1,151 emphasise the need for scientific originality in submissions, which discourages scientists to submit replications. 63% neither encourage nor discourage replications. The other 1% actively discourage replications. And 1% of 1,151... It's, it's more than it should be. 11 journals saying, no, don't, don't do that. Don't test what we've already published. Don't hold us to accountability. Don't do that. Thanks. Don't try and make sure that the previous guy's methodology was good and well reported. And of course, if peer review is doing what it should and putting a paper under a board of experts who can highlight errors in methodology, conclusions, analysis, then there would be less pressure on it in that way. But out of the 1,151 journals, I can, I do have my suspicions that not all of them are as rigorous as the top-flight, high-impact journals that they're aspiring to. Well, let's circle away from the replication crisis in journal publishing, move on to something a bit more fun for the summer. Yeah, good times. You know, hanging out by the pool, maybe you get on a lilo, maybe you're playing with a beach ball. It's all great fun. And what's that smell? You mean that? distinctive plastic pool toy smell sort of you know is plasticky it? a little bit sweet is that a terpene it seems more like a carbonyl compound a cyclohexone phenyl isoforone you know the kind of stuff which it turns out that the plastics in pool toys are decaying into and might be critical in higher concentrations in children's toys according to the latest research in analytical and bioanalytical chemistry. Now, not all of these inflatables are potentially dangerous. We don't want to cause any panic, but it might be worth looking into these fragrant compounds a little bit more closely. Yes, the uh, descriptive language used in this is really quite something. The researchers, led by Christoph Wiedner and Andrea Bertner, took samples, just little snips of the PVC, and extracted detectable odours from each sample using solvent extraction and high vacuum distillation methods. And between the 32 and 46 odours detected in each sample, up to 13 were quite intense. As part of the study, a panel of trained volunteers were set to sniff each of the things which were being tested, uh, which included an inflatable beach ball, a pair of swimming armbands, and two bathing rings, and ascribed common odour attributes to what they picked up, as well as rating the intensity of each odour, and I think just for fun, trying to guess whether they could be hazardous. Here, sniff this. It might be dangerous. 
Three of the products reminded the panellists of almonds, plastic and rubber, while the fourth, more pungent one, reminded them of glue and nail polish. Almonds. Pleasant. Plastic and rubber. Mm, not great. Glue and nail polish. I've been explicitly told not to sniff. But Christoph Wiedmer does express his concern that some of the products might be potentially hazardous, noting that cyclohexanone can be harmful if inhaled, phenol is acutely toxic and presumed to have mutagenic potential, and isoforone is a Category 2 carcinogen, which means that it may contribute to the development of cancer in humans. Maybe. It's not necessarily been tested, but it's maybe. So, if you are out this summer having a paddle, having a bathe, having a swim, and you notice a smell of glue, nail polish, and a touch of almonds, then... Don't inhale too strongly. This is also any time you're in a body of water, frankly. Try not to drown, basically. That's my advice to all of you. Try not to drown. Good advice, because too much moisture can lead to extinctions, according to new research from the University of Adelaide, which is linked melting of glaciers around 11 to 15,000 years ago with the extinction of megafauna, including giant sloths and saber-toothed cats. Melting glaciers and permafrost essentially cause a lot more persistent moisture in, for example, a formerly lush grassland and turn it into bogs, which are quite challenging for a mammoth to traverse and thereby break up populations of grassland megafauna and cause a lot of trouble in your ecosystem. Now the way that they have reached this conclusion is by radiodating bones from animals such as bison and horse and llamas, which we have today, to investigate the environmental changes from ancient samples and comparing it to current living extant species. And analysing the level of moisture in the environment by looking at the nitrogen isotopes present in those bones. We didn't expect to find such clear signals of moisture increases occurring so widely across all of Europe, Siberia and the Americas, says study leader Professor Alan Cooper. The timing varied between regions but matches the collapse of glaciers and permafrost and occurs just before most species go extinct. Lead author Dr Tim Rabanus-Wallace from the University of Adelaide also notes that the extinctions have got a certain domino effect because grassland megafauna were critical to the food chains. They acted like giant pumps that shifted nutrients around the landscape. When the moisture influx pushed forests and tundras to replace the grasslands, the ecosystem collapsed and took the megafauna with it. And Professor Cooper again does note later that this can explain why Africa is so different with a much lower rate of megafaunal extinctions and many species surviving to this day. Its position across the equator means that the grassland zones have always been surrounded by a central monsoon region. Stable grasslands are what have allowed large herbivores to persist, rather than any special wariness of hunters learned from humans evolving there. All of this might have been lost if it were not for bogs actually being quite good at preserving stuff. Bogs are terrifically good at preserving stuff. We know things about, you know, the culture and religious practices of, for example, ancient Britons because of bodies found in bogs. We know that we had tattoos and what we ate and how far people might travel in their lifetimes from bog bodies. We've even found their butter. 
don't eat bog butter. If you can avoid it, please don't eat the fossil. But sometimes you lick it and it sticks to your tongue and then you inhale it. What? Well, because you might lick a rock to determine that it is definitely a fossil. And I have heard tell that if it is, you know, small or flaky, it might stick to your tongue and then you may inhale it. And just, you know, have a little choke. If you do happen to find any bog butter in your bog spelunking, then we do encourage you to not eat it. But at least they were being extinct in a place that made it so much easier to find their remains later. <laughs> Handy that it worked out that way, I guess. Because imagine if they'd gone extinct somewhere that wasn't as moist and preserving as it was, somewhere much more arid and... So they got mummified instead? Mummification would have worked as well. You just have to desiccate them quite thoroughly, I guess. And turns out, with water collection and retention becoming increasingly important as our climate shifts to the extremes, chemists and the engineers have been working on that one. In a very Mad Max Fury Road way, preservation of water using a metal organic framework has managed to pull water from dry air powered only by the sun. And this isn't totally dry air, we're still talking about 20% humidity, but given that we live in the UK where 80% humidity is more typical, that's impressively dry. The solar-powered harvester constructed at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology can pull 2.8 litres of water from the air over 12 hours using one kilo of the metal organic framework in 20 to 30% humidity. And Omar Yagi, one of the two senior authors of the paper, doesn't uh, pull his humble punches when he says, this is a major breakthrough in the long-standing challenge of harvesting water from air at low humidity. There is no other way to do that right now except by using extra energy. Your electric dehumidifier at home produces very expensive water. And our vision is to have water off-grid, where you can have a device running on ambient solar for delivering water that satisfies the needs of a household. That would be made possible because of this experiment. He calls it personalised water. I call it a way of making sure that millions of people across impoverished nations have access to clean water. Yagi himself invented metal organic frameworks more than 20 years ago, combining metals like magnesium or aluminium with organic molecules to create rigid porous structures and since then researchers worldwide have developed more than 20,000 different metal organic frameworks which can hold chemicals such as hydrogen or methane, can capture carbon dioxide from flue gases, catalyze the reaction of absorbed chemicals or separate petrochemicals in processing plants. So this is some really useful technology. Useful stuff. I'm wondering if he knew how useful it was going to be when he first started fiddling with them. Well, it sounds like this is maybe just one of the most public-facing applications for the metal organic frameworks after all of the uh, industrial uses that you've listed there. And the current metal organic framework, or MOF for short, can absorb only 20% of its weight in water. But they do highlight in this paper that other materials could possibly absorb 40% or more and that it can be tweaked to be more effective at higher or lower humidity levels, and it could provide water where it is most needed, even if it's not just you know, personalised water, but solar-powered water 
could really be a game changer for the access to life-preserving material. And if we're going to travel out into our solar system, it will be endlessly useful to be able to, for example, recapture all the water that we lose from our bodies by breathing it out into the air. And for, you know, a rough measure, Yagi does finish up this paper with, we wanted to demonstrate that if you are cut off somewhere in the desert, you could survive because of this device. A person needs about a Coke can of water per day, 330 milliliters for those of you working in metric. That is something one of these could collect in less than an hour, which if you're lost in the desert, you can probably spare the time. And then finally, moving on from technology, which in my eyes could very well save the world, artificial intelligence. Generally, we like to think of it as going quite well, probably going to be fine, hopefully no terminating, but... Unfortunately, the AI is learning its intelligence from humans. You know, those deeply flawed humans that you encounter every day. So the pre-existing texts that are being used to teach artificial intelligences are teaching them our social biases. These poor innocent robots are being taught to be racist. On one level it is a wonderful social commentary that, you know, these absolute blank slates, like the very definition of Tabula Rasa picks up the cultural and historical biases of the text that it is reading from. A racist and sexist society one that has these prejudices inbuilt, endemic to it, and like, are passing it on to our robot children. Like associating flowers with pleasant and insects with unpleasant as one cultural moral. But when it comes to gender, woman and girl are associated more than male words with arts compared to mathematics. And the AI system was more likely to associate apparently European-American names with pleasant words than it was African-American-seeming names. Which follows on neatly from so many articles of research which have linked job application successes with having a white-passing name. So, as we have mentioned before, when the end of the world does come... Sorry. We, we probably could have done better but we were too busy teaching the robots to be jerks. And on that ever-so-charming note, that's just about all we've got time for today. But I'll just leave you with these two mind-benders. That scientists find risk of lead exposure comes from both ends of a gun. I mean, if you're firing a lead slug with lots of heat, you're likely to get some of that vapour up in your tubes. Or a very acute case of lead poisoning. By acute, you mean sharp, right? All that, sexist and anti-gay jokes, are actually just about men feeling threatened. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But until next time, if you do have any questions or comments, and you can send them our way at eurekanerdcast at gmail.com. That's eurekanerdcast at gmail.com. Or find us on Twitter at eurekanerdcast or Facebook as eurekanerd. Or head to eurekanerd.com. Just... Come and hang out with us on the internet. We're cool, really. We're not. We're nerds. We're such huge nerds. I mean, you're not wrong. But until next time, that's bye-bye from me. And goodbye from me.
My cast magic missile. <laughs>